Hey everybody, welcome to Annex tonight. My name is Dave Palmer. I'm grateful that you're here. And, uh, you know, thanks for coming out and uh, uh, not being at a basketball game or at a Kim test right now. So good that you're here. Um, I want to just make one quick uh, sort of uh, uh, edit to what we've shared tonight about Messenger. I actually don't care what your plans are for next summer. I would encourage all of us to, um, to, to, to be courageous enough to consider Messenger regardless of what we think we're going to do next summer. It's kind of part of the point of Messenger is actually to really um, put it all on the table. Tonight, uh, the topic we'll get into as we continue to ask the question, you know, is this real life? Is what Messenger is about following Jesus um, for a summer in a different place? What does it have to do with real life? And tonight we're going to dig into something that I think will tie back to even the prospect of us um, having the courage to put it on the table and ask a hard question that maybe we weren't planning on asking. Um, as we jump into that, let's, uh, I'd love if you'd uh, join me just in prayer if that's something that you're comfortable with. Uh, Jesus, thank you for bringing us here tonight for where uh, in the different places and the different contexts and um, things we're coming from. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would use tonight to um, speak to us in an area of our life that's meaningful, especially um, in our life in you, our journey of faith, wherever we are, Lord. Um, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight we're going to talk about doubt, uh, specifically doubt as it uh, relates to our core beliefs. Um, if you are somebody who follows Jesus, um, how, how do we know that what we believe is true and the doubt that comes around that? And I would just say that if you're um, a college student, uh, college-age student, um, and you uh, are in the classroom in an in a academic environment, that you have been confronted with some really good questions that people are asking really openly in our society, in our context, about the validity of belief in religion, in the supernatural, and things that we can't prove through science. And I remember, and this was, and I, I, I don't know what it's like to be a student immediately, but just two years ago I was in college, and back then, you can laugh because it was more than two years ago, um, we'll work on some of the sarcasm cues. Okay, I'll try that again. So just two years ago, uh, when I was in college, thanks, yeah, thanks, that was good, that was good, okay, anyway. So, um, I'll, I'll definitely be auditioning with Matt Hysteria for Comedy Acts, uh, Christmas on 16th Street. When I was in college, Philosophy 100 was a course that was taught by this guy. He was an adjunct, or I think he was like a sabbatical professor from Australia. So he was playing with house money. The reviews didn't matter. So he just taught this class just straight from the hip. And twice of the 20 lectures that I heard him give in this dreadful auditorium in the computer science building at the University of Washington, twice, his final line was, and that is why there is no Western monotheistic God, a.k.a. the God that many of us believe exists. And then, I'd, you know, you leave the classroom and then you walk 15 to 20 minutes home in the rain thinking like, well, geez, I'm just really wasting my life. <laughs> Doubt, it's out there. That's a part of our experience right now, and candidly, it's always been a part of any human experience when it comes to asking big questions about who we are. Is there a God, and what does that mean? 
There are two common dead-end approaches to this doubt that I see existing within our community and around our community. I want to address two of those tonight. Two common dead-end approaches to this sort of doubt. The first is the bomb shelter approach to doubt. The bomb shelter approach. That some of us have grown up in the church or recently joined a church and Christian community and we exist or have formed for ourselves a cocoon of faith that has maybe been built for us or that we built for ourselves. That we have learned a sort of system of belief that works as long as it's not disturbed. And it requires a certain level of groupthink, right? We've surrounded ourselves with a a group of people that all think the same way about the world and the way that it works and a system of belief. um, And uh, and as long as we kind of stay together and have the same sort of conversations together and beliefs together, then everything works um, really well. Symptoms of a bomb shelter approach to doubt include this. Defensiveness around perspective or worldview outside of a system of beliefs. So um, I was, uh, at at some point in my um, pastoral journey past college, I was working with a group of students um, in an environment uh, that was connected to a specific denomination of the Christian faith in America. And um, I learned a little bit about this tradi- the tradition in this faith, and I learned that there were certain churches, especially in the South, that split up. People literally decided we can't be in fellowship together anymore because they debated whether or not it was okay to build a kitchen in a church building. Think about that. Okay, defensiveness of any perspective or worldview that's outside of the system of belief. So splitting hairs over things that maybe don't actually matter. A super specific conviction about um, inconclusive matters. Maybe you grew up in a church environment like that and your, your faith feels really strong when everything works together perfectly and all the cogs of who God is supposed to be because that's what I was heard on Sunday from the preacher and how this whole thing works. And, and how life is. It all works until something's out of whack. Until it doesn't work. Until you come to see you. Until you sit in philosophy 100. Until somebody asks some really difficult questions about the things that you just assume are true. Until you like pull out your phone and you start reading interesting articles or critiques on Twitter about how dumb Christianity and religion is. Until you read the new atheists and some of the really good points they bring up and critiques about faith and religion. Until you do that. And then your bomb shelter starts to feel more like a grave. That's one common dead-end approach that I see. The second common dead-end approach, uh, I'm going to call it the screw-it-all approach. And it goes something like this, that you have experienced in your life a few things, maybe they were really uh, acute, critical things, and no doubt that many of us and some of us have experienced that. Or maybe it's just been sort of an accumulation of enough things, where you have enough doubt on your plate to undermine the validity of, of Christianity or a claim of God, and so you say, screw it all forget it. Are you kidding me? I had a terrible experience at church once. Or it is unbelievable. Things, things in scripture are unbelievable or even unacceptable. Man, have you read God in Exodus? How could he do that? 
What a terrible God. I, I know that I, am, I could never accept something like that. Or perhaps you're like, my worldview, the way that I uh, accept things to be, isn't compatible with those claims. So I can't even listen to it. It must be a joke from the beginning. It must be. And so you say, screw it all. Just like throw it all away. But the problem with that approach to doubt is this. You've basically decided that the direction of your life when it comes to some of the most significant questions is just a negative campaign. You're saying the answer is no. Well, what's the answer to the question if the answer isn't Jesus? That's a really significant thing that I think all of us as humans need to do the hard work. Who are we? Why do we exist? Do we have a purpose? Are we more than just the answer no to the supernatural? Because there are people that are very convincing in terms of those questions. It would be like if I came to you and I said, okay, listen, we've got problems in our country. Some big challenges that we need to address. And they would say, yeah. You'd say, yeah, sure. And you'd say, so what's the solution? And you'd say back, well, the Democrats are the problem or the Republicans are the problem. And you're like, okay, so that's fine, but what's the answer to the problem? What's the answer? Neither of these, the bomb shelter or the screw it all approach, are really helpful. And candidly, I think both of them at a certain level, uh, might, this might sound really harsh, but at a certain level, they, they avoid really confrontation and the hard work of doubt. Jesus offers us something different than either of these. Jesus offers us something different. Jesus demonstrated that doubt is not something to be avoided. Uncertainty is not something to be avoided. In fact, it is an essential part of life in Jesus that we seek resolution to uncertainty. Jesus never asked anybody to believe and do the things he instructed them to do based on blind faith. He never, he never said, just do it because I said so. My child, I tell my child to do things on blind faith all the time. You know, when my three-year-old asked, asked me, how come he can't have ice cream three times a day, I can't really explain to him logically, you know, caloric intake and like type 2 diabetes, right? He's not going to understand that. So I just say, you just can't have ice cream, Parker. And most of the time it doesn't work, right? But Jesus never does that. He just never says, he, he actually, he, Jesus actually encourages the questions and the seeking and he promises resolution. In the Sermon on the Mount, one of Jesus' famous sermons that he probably gave many different times in different forms, he said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Ask and seek, knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be open. Pretty incredible promise. See, Jesus didn't ask people to believe without reason. This is a really common misconception. Some believe just would say, you can't actually be a reasonable person and believe in the claims of Jesus, simply because of some elements that they might not be comfortable with that line up with uh, their worldview. But Jesus was not that way. Jesus um, Uh, did not ask, Jesus, that doesn't actually fit with who Jesus was and what he did. Jesus didn't ask people to believe without reason. It was always evidence-based. Jesus gave a lot of evidence to people before he said, follow me. He offered evidence in the substance of his teaching. If you were to take Jesus' teaching seriously, 
Um, Alan quoted Gandhi tonight, and Gandhi, I think, is one of the, was one of the great ethical thinkers of the 20th century. What Gandhi recognized about Jesus is what he taught was brilliant. I, I don't know. I don't know if you're truly. This is going to sound preposterous. I think if you really read Jesus and what he said and how to treat people, all of us would want it to be true and would want to do it. The substance of Jesus' teaching leads to inevitable goodness. The evidence of the substance of his character, the thing is Jesus didn't just say it, he actually did it. People would be willing to follow him as a teacher because he wasn't a hypocrite like most of us are, slash really all of us, including myself. He offered evidence and fulfilled prophecy. Now, this is a part that might get a little bit weird, but one of the most important parts of the Bible for us as Christians, I think the most important part of the Bible for us is, are the Old Testament, the Jewish um, scriptures that are in our Christian Bible, which is the New Testament. The Jewish scriptures offer so much um, direction and prophecy that Jesus fulfills. And so Jesus is saying, I am not just some random, uh, out-of-context experience that's happening right now. I am the fulfillment of centuries and millennia of God preparing to do something that I am fulfilling. Crazy stuff. And finally, he offered evidence and actions. Jesus did things that humans are not supposed to do. Jesus healed sick people. Jesus cast out evil spirits. Jesus did miracles like turning water into wine and feeding people. And finally, the most crazy thing that humans are not supposed to do, Jesus died, but he did not stay dead. Now, what's interesting about all of these claims about Jesus is they were super, super public, which is why there were massive crowds that followed Jesus around. Man, if you know that somebody can heal you from a disease that you don't have a remedy for, you are going to do whatever it takes for that person, right, to leverage your social network to be healed, to be fed. We would still do that today. My dentist died of cancer. I guarantee you he would be lined up to be at the feet of Jesus when it came to being healed. I would want to be with him there too. People flocked to Jesus. And there was no one, we don't have any evidence, first-hand evidence of people critiquing the claims of Jesus' supernatural actions in such public places. All we have are critiques of people critiquing how Jesus was able to do the things that he did. And so the detractors, the people that witnessed Jesus, would say, Jesus, okay, so yeah, you healed that person, but you didn't do it because you're a godly person. You did it because you're an evil person and are tied in with some sort of evil spirit. Jesus didn't ask people to believe without reason. Why is seeking resolution to uncertainty an essential part of life in Jesus? First, that Jesus believed that belief in him was an evidence-based process. There's reason to believe in Jesus, that he is who he says he is. When somebody who says a lot of crazy things dies and doesn't stay dead, you pay attention to the things that they said, and you do the things that they do. The second reason that we seek resolution to uncertainty as an essential part of life in Jesus is that doubt is a core part of Jesus' disciples' experience. When we look at common people that interacted face-to-face with Jesus, every single one of them in the four testimonies and the, uh, the, the, the letters attached to those four testimonies in the New Testament, every single person that followed Jesus had serious 
uncertainty and doubts about what they were witnessing and what it meant. There was not one person who just sort of received everything as they saw it and accepted it sort of blindly without questioning or doubting what they were experiencing. There is a claim that Christianity is the result of a combination of common worldviews that people just in the first century believed in sort of like things like the resurrection and wild spiritual healings and that sort of a thing. And so that was just a part of the way they saw the world. A tied in with Ro- common Roman mythology. There's, um, so there's this theory that, that's floated around out there. That's just how it was born. Because how else do you explain something so crazy as believing that God incarnate came to, to earth was a man and then rose from the grave. How else do you believe that? We kind of tie it all together. But the reality is this, is that Jesus then and now challenges the core beliefs of reality for every human, including every human that he interacted with face-to-face in the first century. There was not one person for whom Jesus did not challenge their common beliefs, their their core worldview about what reality could be like. The resurrection is the most important and I think best example of that. Everyone doubted that it could happen or would happen. In fact, Jesus had a core group of people that for three years followed him around and were both enamored and dismayed by the things that he said because some of the things he said were like incredible and easy to approach and swallow and so uh, remarkable. And then other things were just so disturbing. But he had this posse of people And in in several of the testimonies of Jesus that we have, it is recorded that Jesus told his disciples just straight up, guys, I am going to be killed, but I'm not going to stay dead. Three days later, I'm going to, to, to rise from the dead. Now, how crazy would that? Okay, so when Jesus dies, here's the deal. You know, if they really believed it was going to happen, why would they not be sitting outside of the tomb? Okay, so there's a couple of Roman soldiers there. You know, I would be like at least behind a tree with some binoculars, right? If you believe that Jesus is actually going to be resurrected, wouldn't you want to be there? Instead, all of these people are behind closed doors that are, that are tightly locked because they are terrified and believe that their whole life has fallen apart. The resurrection is not possible. The Jewish community did not believe that what would happen could happen. And you might say, well, what about the rest of the world? What about people that weren't Jewish, like Jesus and his followers? When Paul goes to Athens, which is recorded in Acts, and he preaches this really straightforward, um, remarkable sermon about Jesus to this group of people that don't really know Judaism and certainly don't know Jesus, they're all ears until, until Paul gets to this part where he's like, this guy, Jesus, incredible person, said and is a remarkable person, da-da, and he rose from the dead. And at that point, the Greek thinkers that were in front of uh, Paul listening to him literally shut him down and said, you are a crazy man. Get out of our presence. The idea that the resurrection, that resurrection from the dead was his common worldview that everybody accepted, which is how we got this incredible myth that we're all believing today, is totally bogus. Nobody believed that the resurrection was some sort of common human experience. Nobody believed it. And Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, He has to write to these folks and say, guys, I've heard rumors that you are having a really hard time accepting that the resurrection could have actually happened because people don't rise from the dead. That's craziness. I get that. I get that it sounds crazy. But here's the deal. 
What's crazier is for us to continue to believe the things we believe about Jesus and not accept the resurrection because it's the whole point of who Jesus is. Additionally, there are over 500 people in the city of Jerusalem that have face-to-face interacted with the resurrected Christ. Most of them are still alive because he wrote his letter to the Corinthians less than 20 years after the resurrection. And he said, most of them are still alive. So if you want to come down and talk to the people that have seen the resurrected Christ and know for yourself, come on down. There's plenty of people that want to talk. Jesus challenges the core beliefs of reality for every human. He did it in the first century and he still does it now. Asking hard questions isn't a faith killer. Asking hard questions is essential to real faith that lasts. Imagine if the first Christians had just accepted their own worldview and not actually accepted the evidence through asking hard questions. We wouldn't be here today, and it would be a tragedy. So, you're wondering, how do I How do I healthfully engage my uncertainty and doubt wherever you are on your spiritual journey? I want to offer just a few ways as I try and land the plane here quickly tonight. First is this. Give yourself room for doubt. Give yourself room for doubt. Allow yourself to go to scary places. I'll never forget sitting in a class in seminary and and, and hearing this quote from uh, really a revered theologian, a guy named Stanley Hauerwas, and he basically said, if you're going to really pursue truth, you have to be totally open to the possibility that you are wrong from where you started. Allow yourself to go to scary places. It is possible when we seek truth that we are wrong, even at a core level. There's this moment in the Gospels, this guy named John, he was a cousin of Jesus. His entire life was dedicated to um, literally proclaiming that the kingdom of God was coming and, and offering repentance and baptism to prepare the way for the message and the person of Jesus. So he's chum with Jesus. They grew up at family reunions together. They're like, and he's like literally given his life. And now he's in prison and he doesn't know it yet, but he's about to die because of what he's done for the sake of Jesus and the work of Jesus. And in prison, he is doubting. And the scary question comes up, did I just waste my entire life? And do you know what John does? John asks the scary question. He goes back to Jesus. He has some people that go back to Jesus. Jesus, are you the guy? Jesus says yes. Give yourself room for doubt. Allow yourself to go to scary places. Scrutinize your rigid assumptions where your mind is closed. Friends, those are not safeguards against unfaithfulness and disbelief. A rigid worldview, a closed mind, is not a safeguard against unbelief. It is not helpful. Maybe this is a a, a rigid assumption that you hold, that everything in the Bible must be factually accurate and uh, to be true. Otherwise, none of it's true. If we got Moses' age wrong, in the Bible, then none of it's true, including Jesus. That's a rigid assumption, a closed mind. The supernatural doesn't exist because it can't be scientifically proven. A rigid assumption, a closed mind. All of us, friends, will do better and be more open to truth if we are willing to let go of our rigid assumptions and our closed minds. So uh, point number one, give yourself room for doubt. Number two, ask big questions with people you trust. Ask big questions with people you trust. 
If you don't have people that you can trust with your big questions, I would encourage you to begin to ask uh, the Lord for those, pray for them, whatever you got to do. But don't ask your questions in a vacuum because most likely what you're going to get is your own mind's group think. You're going to answer the answers the way that you would answer them. Don't read the Bible by yourself. Read the Bible with others. This book, as amazing as it is, can be wildly confusing and off-putting if you don't understand what's happening in it. Read it in a group with other people. That's why I love core groups, and hopefully you're taking advantage of it. So give yourself room for doubt. Ask big questions with people you trust. And then finally, finally, and this looping it back to Messenger, get outside of your worldview bubble. Get outside of your worldview bubble. You might ask, why do I need to go across the world to do this sort of, um, to do this work, to have this experience, to do this internship called Messenger? Why is it necessary that we fly on an airplane to a different place? There is something so powerful that happens when we get outside of our worldview bubble. For some of us, we have never really um, forced the issue with our faith. Everything's worked out to this point. We've had enough sort of certainty in our life, enough people that affirm the way we see things, and everything's worked for us. This is a great opportunity to foster healthy uncertainty in your faith. Healthy uncertainty. There is such a thing to be shaken up and ask difficult questions that you've never had to ask because your worldview, your perspective, your vantage point has never changed. To allow different perspectives and experiences to challenge and grow your own beliefs. That's what happens when we get a different worldview outside of our bubble. And sometimes being somewhere else is the only way that we can approach belief differently. Perhaps we're at a roadblock where we we just cannot believe. There's so much uncertainty about maybe core aspects about Jesus and who he is. And we cannot believe from from the vantage point that we have here in Boulder and the mindset that, that, that we own or perhaps your community owns. And to be outside of that, to be able to see it from a different angle could be a game changer. One of the things um, that I, I love about what I've heard of the South Africa trip experience this summer is that their team spent so much time um, in private conversation talking about their core doubts about, what, um, about, about their own beliefs. And it was, I think, a, a really powerful thing and essential to their experience, to do it outside of a place where everything had been stripped away. All the assumptions and the comforts um, of our life um, for them had been stripped away, and those difficult questions could be asked. Friends, maybe you have grown up in a community where doubt is like a four-letter word in the Christian faith. I would like to share with you tonight, I do not believe that that is true. Doubt is not a four-letter word. Doubt can submarine us. If we choose the bomb shelter or the screw-it-all approach, we choose apathy or laziness or complacency, then yeah, doubt can absolutely submarine the potential that is in front of us in the invitation of Jesus Christ. It will not be easy for us to maintain and walk the line of faith in Jesus. Absolutely not. He never, he never promised that. However, asking hard questions is not the death of following Jesus. In fact, it is the lifeblood for healthy faith. So are we going to have the courage to do it? Jesus, um, thank you. Thank you that you gave your disciples room um, to question, to ask difficult questions and to doubt. That you extended them incredible patience as you taught them and demonstrated the new life that you also desire for us. And that you say that when we ask and we seek and we knock, 
that you are waiting and willing to respond to us. So Lord, wherever we are on this journey, we ask that you would um, meet us in a place to encourage us to address the uncertainty that we hold about our faith in you and the reality uh, in front of us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.